break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, first of October 2021. Happy October to you. Very happy to be back with you here on the show And we've got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about women and life sentences in the U.S. prison system. We're also going to be talking about some serious abuses of power by the FBI in terms of them spying on you, by the way. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with the Oath Keepers inside the NYPD. Amid the fallout from the January 6th storming of the Capitol by the far right has been renewed scrutiny of the ties between the right wing and various police forces in the country. Recently, an examination of a leak of records from the far right group The Oath Keepers by WNYC and The Gothamist shed further light on this issue, identifying members of the NYPD who are members of The Oath Keepers, which played a central role in breaching the Capitol, among other things. Ideologically, the Oath Keepers are not terribly different from many other far-right paramilitary groups. As one research organization describes their views, they believe that, quote, the government is secretly planning, along with foreign countries and the United Nations, to impose martial law, seize all Americans' guns, force resistors into concentration camps, and install a one-world totalitarian government known as the New World Order. In real life, they often show up very well armed to protect businesses in the wake of uprisings, I should say, quote unquote, protect businesses, mobilizing armed border presences aimed at terrorizing immigrants, supporting businesses that support violating COVID-19 guidelines, rallying to protect far right ranchers that oppose government land sales and participating in various events aimed at demonizing Muslims. So you get a sense of them there. The Oath Keepers fully backed the fraudulent theory that the 2020 election was stolen from President Trump, by the way, and were prominently featured as part of some of the various groups who stormed the Capitol and about 18 have been arrested in regards to the January 6th events. What has always set the Oath Keepers apart, however, from other right-wing groups is that they openly make big claims that their membership, which they say is about 35,000, is heavily made up of retired and active police, sheriffs, and military members. While the actual size of the group is unclear, every now and again, information regarding their ties to law enforcement does indeed crop up, and that's where this new leak does come in. As George Joseph, one of the reporters involved in the investigation, details about the NYPD involvement here, quote, one of the names matches that of a veteran officer assigned to the NYPD's firearm and tactics section. When Micah Lowinger, who's a reporter who was working on this, contacted the number linked to him in the hack data, he acknowledged that he was an NYPD officer, but declined to confirm his relationship with the militia group. And Mr. Joseph went on to note that, quote, another name in the data dump matches that of an officer in the NYPD's strategic response group, the department's specialized unit that has drawn numerous brutality complaints from Black Lives Matter protesters, end quote. The leaks, quote, also name Ed Kiruz, 
chief of staff for the New York Guard, which reports to Governor Kathy Hochul. And Carruz is also an employee of the New York State Division of Military and Naval Affairs, which oversees approximately 20,000 National Guard naval militia, even though there was a naval militia, and other forces. In the log entries associated with Carruz, they referred to his ability to, quote, recruit from New York Army and Air Guard, New York State Guard, and U.S. Coast Guard auxiliaries. And specifically, they noted that there are over 20 riders that work at National Guard HQ. Some of them are members of Combat Veterans and Patriot Guard, and I will work to bring them on board with the Oath Keepers, he said. In response to the inquiry from WMYC and the Gothamist, he did, in fact, acknowledge that he had signed up online for a one-year Oath Keepers membership several years back, but said he was no longer actively involved. And he also said that he had notified the New York Guard commander of his association. And the reporting finally lays out that quote in New York, WMYC and the Gothamists identified dozens of names that appeared to match those of current and former police, court and corrections officers in New York City and other jurisdictions, including Nassau County on Long Island and Dutchess and Green counties in upstate New York. Now, of course, officials, including Mayor Bill de Blasio, are scrambling to launch investigations. But this reporting speaks to something much deeper. Routinely around the country, police officers are linked to far-right groups. Further, police agencies themselves develop a culture of fascistic-like internal groups, like the L.A. Sheriff's Department gangs that we've talked about quite a bit here on The Punch-Out, that promote violence and brutality against civilians and celebrate on-duty killings, something that is often found in specialized groups like the D.C. Police's Gun Recovery Unit that has a skull with a bullet hole between the eyes as their logo. The culture of policing in the United States is a breeding ground for the types of far-right dehumanization of large subsets of people that lies behind the epidemic of police terrorism that has touched off multiple mass uprisings in the past several years. The Justice Department Inspector General has released this week a report that, yet again, revealed that the FBI is routinely abusing its authority to spy on essentially every single American under the guise of counterterrorism. Quote, unquote. As the Washington Post reports, quote, an inquiry into how the FBI handles some of its most sensitive surveillance work found widespread failure to follow one of the key rules in the program. And the findings were a result of a look into the FBI's handling of the Russiagate issue and detailed that the violations of FISA rules concerning the Carter Page investigation were, quote, part of a broader pattern of failure by agents to adhere to their own standards on a wide variety of espionage and terrorism cases. And the report that was issued by the IG noted that they had found these problems going back to 2015. The rules that were broken relate to something called the Woods File. That's a document that agents are supposed to fill out to put the supporting information behind the application to tap all of people's communications. So essentially, the reasons why what they're saying about you are true, or at least true enough that they should be given a warrant to be able to view all of your electronic communications. And the review by the inspector general found that in 183 cases, there were major omissions. Altogether, though, this really shouldn't be that surprising. This is, in fact, something that happens all the time. And routinely, the government is putting out reports saying that that is, in fact, the case. Between mid-2019 and early 2020, FBI personnel conducted queries of data troves containing Americans' emails and other communications seeking information without proper justification, according to a redacted ruling from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. In a December 2019 opinion, a judge found that the FBI had transgressed the privacy rules by searching for information on a job candidate, potential sources, and a crime victim. 
An inspector general's report declassified in 2015 found that the FBI just straight up lied about some of its abuses. For instance, in 2009, the FBI put out a quote-unquote compliance report on what they were doing with their spying authority. They claimed that they had not found any incidences of agents accessing information of someone who was later found out to have been on U.S. soil, which, again, they aren't supposed to be doing. The report itself, though, stated that, quote, we found several instances in which the FBI acquired communications on the same day that the NSA determined through analysis of intercepted communications that the person was in the United States. And that was part of an overall view of the oversight process that was found to be, quote unquote, deficient, the process that is. It's important to note that the powers that the FBI is abusing here are, in fact, vast. We can't fully get into it here, but the thrust of the power the FBI has is as follows. The NSA taps the massive Internet nodes that run into and out of the U.S. and other countries, capturing essentially all Internet traffic and creating a huge database of information. FBI agents can do a few things with that information. Under a range of rules, which, as we have seen, they don't actually follow, they can make explicit applications to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which is totally secret, to view any of the things that might be in there about you. But... And this is a big but. The FBI can search the database without any real constraints at all in order to determine whether or not they want to investigate you. So they don't actually have to apply for a warrant. They just have to say, oh, well, maybe you're a person of interest and they can read, in fact, all of your electronic communications. So overall, it's essentially a free for all to look into every electronic communication of any U.S. person as long as essentially they know how to work the system. And again, as we're seeing. They do know how to work the system. It is routine, par for the course, for the FBI to abuse the vast spying powers that are continually reauthorized by Congress by a majority of both major parties. Two hundred thirty-one thousand women and girls are incarcerated in the United States. As a new report from the Sentencing Project details, quote, one of every 15 women in prison are serving a sentence of life without parole or a virtual life sentence of 50 years or more. There are 2,000 women serving formal life without parole sentences and 52 on death row. The top five states in terms of the number of women serving life without parole sentences are Florida, Pennsylvania, California, Michigan, and Louisiana. The Sentencing Project also notes, quote, women of color are disproportionately subjected to extreme sentences compared to their white peers. Nationally, one of every 39 black women in prison is serving life without parole, compared with one of every 59 imprisoned white women. In Pennsylvania, one in nine black women in prison are serving life without parole. In Michigan, it's one in 11. In Mississippi, it's one in 12. And in Louisiana, one in 14 black women in prison have a life without parole sentence. Women given these sentences are unsurprisingly convicted of murder-related offenses and tend to be particularly subject to the ways the law disregards violence against women as an important and a mitigating factor in what took place. For instance, in many states, if someone kills someone, then essentially everyone there, like, for instance, if you acted as the getaway driver, is also held liable for the murder as if you had committed it, even if you had no idea the person was going to commit a murder. And this particularly affects women who are often forced by intimate partners into situations where they are acting as technical accomplices, but really are victims themselves. And the sentencing project notes, quote, in Michigan, 57 of 203 women serving life without parole over one quarter have been convicted under the state statute requiring 
sentences for felony murder for people who were not, in fact, involved in the murder. In Pennsylvania, 40 of the 201 women reported to be serving life without parole sentences have been convicted of felony murder in a similar way, amounting to one of every five women serving life without parole. And further, many women convicted of murder are defending themselves against an abuser or are just generally caught in cycles of abuse and violence. As the report notes, quote, a seminal study of 42 survivors of intimate partner abuse convicted of murder in California found that all but two had received life sentences. Six were sentenced to life without parole, and the remaining 34 received life sentences with minimums that ranged from 7 to 15 years. But at the time of the study, all of these women had already served 25 years. And additionally, interview data from 99 women serving life sentences showed that 17% had been convicted of killing their former or current intimate partner. Now, of course, the reality here is that these factors are very often discounted as mitigating factors in sentencing, which ultimately speaks to the overall reality of the criminal legal system in the United States. It isn't about public safety, but trying to sweep the problems that capitalist society causes but refuses to solve under the rug with devastating consequences. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthroughnews. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 